everyone, this is Divya. Welcome to episode 21 of Articulate. Through this podcast, I try and connect with artists and art practitioners from different parts of the world. Today, I present Natasha Jaising. Natasha is a Mumbai-based art consultant and founder of Carpe Arte. She has a Bachelor of Fine Arts from the Government um, College of Art Chandigarh and a postgraduate diploma in design from the National Institute of Design, NID Ahmedabad. Natasha has worked alongside curators, managed public art commissions, and has worked on creative projects such as the refurbishment of the State Hall at the Rashtrapati Bhavan, that is the Grand uh, Palace residence of the President of India in New Delhi. She has also curated collaborative shows at prestigious galleries in Chennai and has worked on projects with famous designers such as Regis Matthew and Jean-Francois Lesage. Apart from having a day job as an independent art consultant, Natasha has started Carpe Arte, a platform that encourages people to engage with and support contemporary art. Through her projects, she hopes to take art to a wider audience through pop-up exhibitions, interactive projects, and dialogues around the subject. So here is my conversation with Natasha. Hi, Natasha. How are you? Thanks for being Hi, Hi, Divya. Thank you for having me on your podcast. And thank you for agreeing to be on my podcast. This is really special. (laughs) Um, I know for a fact that you are at the moment in a very, very special place called Leh. Um, So why don't you just describe to the listeners uh, the vista around you? I mean, the, the scene from your window is absolutely amazing and i know uh lay is like the border it borders tibet does it or uh it's the topmost part of um india one of yeah, the topmost. so so lay is of course the capital city of ladakh yeah. which is the newest union territory of india mm-hmm. it's um it's been given the status uh last year so it recently just celebrated one year of being a ut government of its own okay uh lay of course is the central uh, the capital city as i said and it's actually where most of the tourists would come Mm -hmm. um and it's it's the place where you have all your flights landing and taking off from here um so i'm not too far well i'm about 200 odd kilometers from the border of china where there was this skirmish happening between the two countries earlier this year Mm -hmm. um and I'm probably equally close to the border of Pakistan. Okay. Um, and yeah, and it's really interesting to be here because you're technically um, surrounded by the Himalayas. So you have a gorgeous landscape around you. There's still snow on some of the peaks, even though this is like really uh, summer over mm, here. Yeah. And um, this is also like the apricot belt of the country. So I've been gorging myself on apricots <laughs> the last month or so. Uh, mm. It's really, really pretty. And now, of course, we're going into apple season. Okay. Um, it's also extremely harsh because it's actually a cold desert, which mm. means that um, unless there is water specifically available in an area, the the region is quite arid and uh, barren. Mm. So so it's it's quite harsh in the winters. I can um, and I yeah and I I really um, it's it's also one of those places where because there's a very low density of people it really uh, allows you the time and space to just be with yourself and to really recalibrate your life because you know your thoughts aren't overwhelmed 
by all of the white noise around that usually happens in life so i've been really lucky that i've uh, been able to spend most of uh, the lockdown wow. um, that has been in india uh, in this place i've been here since the end of may mm-hmm. um and i hope to be here till october i guess <laughs> Actually, yeah, it's been it's been tougher trying to get to work here because it's just so easy to you know want to go for a walk or want to go for a hike or yeah. picnic outside rather than you know sit in front of a computer. Amazing. Um, yeah. And uh, is the is the rare is the air quite rarefied? Do you uh, have trouble breathing? Do you need any extra kind of acclimatization um, or something? No. So when you do come here, of course you are. Uh, required to acclimatize for two to three days okay. because of the height. Um, I've luckily had no issues with that. But of course, when I first came, I had to quarantine for fourteen days in any case. So, wow, okay. um, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. But um, but ever since then, uh, I've been up to Khardungla, uh, which is eighteen thousand plus feet. Mm. Um, I've been mm. to some really cool archaeological sites to see some really nice prehistoric. rock carving which is quite cool Look. uh so yeah it's been uh, it's been a really nice actually quarantine and lockdown for me i've been very lucky i usually ask my guests to basically talk a bit about you know your influences growing up and your relationship with art was it from an early age when did you take start taking art seriously and when did you decide um you wanted to be uh, in, in the um art career and who were your role models growing up so if you can just say a bit about your um you know growing up years so i think uh growing up my father was in the air force and i got to travel a lot of india because of his job okay and i think that sort of gave me an innate um idea of how vast and how interesting our country is mm-hmm. and um I can't really say that I had a lot of exposure to art. My dad used to listen to a lot of western classical music. Mm. But and my mother used to paint, but it was more like a hobby thing. So mm. I can't say growing up I was exposed to a lot of art, but yes, um I did see a lot of painting, I did see a lot of craft, I did see a lot of um I did hear a lot of, you know, really great western classical music growing up and I was always like you know doing craft things and painting and making decoupage and those kind of things. Mm. Um, but I think I was in my head. I had this idea that I was going to be a doctor, and that's pre- predominantly because my father's side of the family um, are all doctors. You know, right. it's kind of like doctors married to doctors whose children are doctors, mm. etc., etc. Becomes the family um, and business. So, yeah. <laughs> I think I just had that idea in my head that I would also be a doctor. Right. Um. and in 11th and 12th you know uh, i was really really struggling with a science math combination and i remember my um, i think it was my zoology teacher who you know used to look at my diagrams and be like you know you're in the wrong field mm-hmm. because my diagrams would always be like highly detailed and you know they would be like with color pencils and shading and and every other student would just be a basic line drawing and mine would be like these you know crazy like colored shaded drawings and my teacher was really like you know you're in the wrong you're doing in the wrong line yeah and i think i was so traumatized by uh, just the board exams of uh, 12th standard mm. with a pc with a uh, biomath combo that i kind of decided that i didn't want to study anymore mm. 
Um, and that's when I started looking at fine art, actually, because I was really intrigued by the idea that everything to do with art is is actually a physical um, sort of all physical assignments. Yeah, there's very little time. like studying. Yeah, sure, you learn history of art and you learn aesthetics, but you know it's not like overwhelmingly like you're not mugging up things. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think so. After my twelfth, I literally didn't do any other exams except give the exams for art colleges. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did my BFA from Chandigarh, mm-hmm. and uh, then I decided to switch to design. And so I went to NID and I did my uh, postgraduate diploma in lifestyle accessory design, which is an offshoot of product design. And actually being at both these institutes made me realize that I, um, I didn't want to actually create, Mm. but I really wanted to be engaged and involved in the creative fields. Uh, And so I think I sort of very naturally and organically veered towards project management. Mm -hmm. Um, and so then I worked with an architect uh, in, in Madras mm. um, and he, uh, he's a German architect who runs a company called Mancini Enterprises. His name is Niels Schoenfelder. Oh, and so yes, with Niels, of course. Uh, I did a lot of customized objects for his interior spaces. Mm-hmm. You know, so we would do customized lighting, customized carpets, customized fabrics. And, and so again, it was really interesting because I was working with a lot of craft people uh, creating these it, it's uh, just one of uh, products, is it? Um, exactly, mm. exactly. Specific to a particular site and mm. a particular design language, you know. Um, and so that's how I started project management. And then, of course, like um, when Rajiv said he was curating uh, the permanent collection of art at the Hayat in Chennai, Hayat Regency in Chennai, mm-hmm. um, I did the project management for him. And that was really interesting because it was a three-year-long project and we commissioned 55 artists to make site-specific work. Amazing. Um, yeah. And uh, and then it was just... Um, yeah, so what kind of... Uh, freelancing. What, was it more for um, actual, you know, official buildings or was this just for exhibitions or what kind of site-specific work would these artists be doing? So this was specifically for the Hyatt Regency. For the, the Hyatt Regency is run by the Saraf family, the same people who have the Grand Hyatt in Bombay. So within and the, the Hyatt, Hyatt hotels uh, in the yes, country. Yes, so within oh, the hotel. It was a public art within the hotel. Fantastic. Um, and so the Hyatt, the Grand Hyatt in Bombay actually has a fabulous collection with very early works by um, Atul Dodia, Anju Dodia, uh, you know, work by Hema Upadhyay. In fact, like it has some of the first, you know, it has the first of the mattress series that uh, Anju Dodia started. Mm-hmm. It has the first of the um, sort of this, the slum dwelling series that Hema Padhyar had done. So in that sense, it's it's a very interesting collection. Mm-hmm. And so the same family, when they um, when they took over the Hayat Regency in, uh, in, in Madras, they mm-hmm. wanted to build a collection over there as well. Right. And, uh, so so, yeah, so they so use, do they use was... local artists or uh, did you have to... Um... Um, talk to it was artisans. a mix it was we a mix. had a lot okay. of a lot of the uh, local artists uh, who are now of course better established and known so we have uh, Benita Persial we have um, Purush, uh, we have Purushottam we have Sunil uh, and all of these are people who've then gone on to sort of establish their careers mm. um, um yeah so of course at that time they, they were all just starting off because this was 
2008, 2009. Right, right, right. Fantastic. So what an exposure and a half. So, so did you have a say in choosing who you wanted um, to represent uh, the Hayat or uh, were you working with them in terms of managing the projects? So um, I didn't have a say in that because Rajiv said he was a curator mm. and it was his vision. Mm-hmm. Um, my job was to introduce him to local artists and yeah. find local artists. Mm-hmm. So, of course, like uh, I was arranging a lot of studio visits, a lot of meetings with the artists. Um, and then, of course, when they were being commissioned, you know, I was um, making sure that we were following uh, timelines, that they were making uh, things according to maquettes and models that had been approved, um, that the sizes, the fixing details were all compliant with what was being done on site, things like that. Wow. So, um, yeah, I mean, when you talked about uh, Neil's, um, you know, what's his name? The, Neil Schoenfelder. Uh, last week was his, um, he had a, a viewing of his house in the Architectural Digest in Instagram. What a yes. house. Oh my goodness. I was so jealous <laughs> in Chennai. It was fantastic. Um, yeah. So that's fantastic. So how many years was that in Chennai for three years, you said? Well, um, so I finished NID in 2005 and I was already in Pondicherry working with a company over there, mm. um, working with Niels, in fact, from 2005 onward. Um, and I was with Niels till 2008 right. before I, I started the project with Rajiv and uh, I started my career as a freelance consultant. So okay, my so. actual full-fledged job was with Neil Schoenfelder and I think it was like only the second job I've ever had as an employee of someone. I mean, it's the what what amazing experience to have right in the beginning of your career. I think, you know, you're very modest about NID. I know how hard it is to get into that institute. It is like the most prestigious um, design institute in the country, if not the world. And um, that opens a lot of doors, doesn't it? Like if you um, really engage with the course and you kind of um, do well in it and you probably picked up by people like Niels and Rajiv City. Did that help you or how was the course? Was it really rigorous? Well, I think uh, one of the great things about NID is that it makes you unlearn a lot of things that Mm. you've picked up and tend to sort of, you know, go by. Um, NID tends to break those, um, you know, pre-prescribed Mm. boundaries that you tend to that education in India tends to set for you Mm. Um, the other great thing about NID is of course the access to its alumni right like any great college yeah uh, the alumni is is what is its strong point and um, a lot of the designers in India today are ex-NID yeah Um, and so you know no matter what you're working on it's always possible to find a reference, a mentor, a collaborator because mm. of this network. I see. Um, NID was uh, rigorous. I have to say that my course was quite interesting because I was the first batch of the okay. lifestyle accessory design program. Mm-hmm. So it was a new program that was introduced at the postgraduate level and I was the first batch. Mm. And um, so it was interesting because there was no sort of a preset um syllabus Mm. 
you know and uh, so we as the students at the batch we were allowed to also you know ask for a specific course if we felt it would be helpful for us and so it was really nice because we were mixing and matching these various courses and saying that oh you know i think we should also try this and we should do that and the other great thing that nid has is its connect to craft like every student has to engage with some craft and has to do a documentation of a living craft mm-hmm. which means that you go out in the field you engage with the craft people you document it and they have such a fabulous um, collection okay. Okay. of all of this information you know their library their resource center is just uh, brilliant mm. and of course it comes with all of the history right like mm. of why it was set up and all of those great examples <laughs> so mm. um so yeah i mean it, it it's an extremely interesting space to be in um i don't know if it's difficult to get in or not because i guess once you've done the exam and you're in it, it doesn't seem difficult right like <laughs> that's true with every uh course so many people oh okay fine it's it's not yeah. as bad as i thought it would be hmm so um you uh, you did sculpture in chandigarh and then design so you were an artist you probably had to make um art yourself so do you think being an artist gives you that special insight into what is good art in quote like the process how paint feels like how it mixes or smells like and you know how many hours that people are to spend alone in the studio and so you basically you can empathize with them and you understand their passion so is do you think um being an artist um uh, kind of uh, gave you a kind of um a push in your field well definitely having a background in art and design uh allows me to be a better project manager because i um when you say project manager you make it really administrative in the sense that just managing timelines and ensuring the administrative but i'm sure there's more like meat in it right you kind of there is i mean there's a lot of conversation there's a lot of uh you know negotiating even when it comes to finalizing a creative concept because there are always three parties involved right uh there's a client there's a curator yeah and there's the artist mm. and on a purely uh, practical aspect there's the site yeah right which itself um, is an element so yeah your what your what i have to do is sort of navigate between the three people to make sure everyone has agreed to the same concept it's not that the client is expecting something that is a different end result from what the artist is going to deliver or the mm. curator is envisioning mm. right um and that is quite tricky because um at the end of the day like uh, you know when you work with creative people they have their own very clear ideas of what they want to do yeah and um and it takes a special kind of a client and a special kind of a curator to be able to enhance that mm. and not say that ha huh, i know you're doing this but actually i want you to do that yeah right um and so yeah when you do project management for art and design related projects it's actually very different from what i imagine a business project management is you have gatekeepers to that okay these are going to be good artists and these are that's not to negate someone like my mother who might want a painting of a landscape you know she has every right to want a painting of a landscape even if there is an artist who does realist 
transmitting things like why not hmm. you know that that's entirely their prerogative um i i really like um what i get to do in artist studios i get to spend a lot of time with artists and because i have a background in art i think they don't see me as somebody who's only yes like, exactly from the management yeah. side yeah 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 absolutely so so that always helps because um you know at the end of the day they they see me as somebody who's not going to screw them over mm. in the you know big holistic um so sort of yeah. overview of the project yeah 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 and 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 that's really where my background helps is because um you know i can uh, i can really build a connect with them Mm-hmm. So did you use all of this um when you uh, why did you okay let's start to talk about Carpe Arte. Uh, how did that come about and um why did you even think of this idea of starting Carpe Arte you know is was that did you feel that there was a gap in the market in terms of um how you know artists were being represented and when you spoke to all these artists who did work for you um and you saw that others were being ignored so was that something that um gave you that impetus to start kapiati so i have to say that i'm not really involved with the market aspect of art like mm. i don't run a gallery i do consulting yes but um i do a lot more projects which aren't you know focused on um the market value of an artist mhm and so in that way i've been lucky because i've been able to engage with art without too much of a focus on the value of it the monetary value of it right um for me carpe arte was more about um the fact that i found there are lots of general public and and i'm talking about my own friends mm. you know not engaging with art Mm. like i know a lot of my friends and even people from nid who don't go to art galleries who don't engage with art and um i found that odd because you know every time i go to paris or if i go to london you you see a lot more of the general public engaging with art mm-hmm. engaging with contemporary art Do you think it's you because know, Indians um, look at contemporary art to... as a, as a western phenomenon? I mean, we think of craft as something that is intrinsic to India, but when you talk about uh, contemporary art, it's something that's been uh, inherited from or influenced by the west and they don't see themselves as uh, somebody who can understand that or want to understand that. I don't think that's the issue. I think the because if you look, if you look if you go to the government museum you see a lot of the common public going there and they're very comfortable going there mm. um mm. but you don't see contemporary art in those spaces right like you see a lot of prehistorical art you see natural yeah. art you see all of those things but contemporary art was sort of relegated to this stratosphere of the elite mm. you know you had to go to a gallery and you didn't know if you could just drop by whether you need an appointment whether you had to like you know know somebody and and how did you behave in a gallery and did you have to be dressed a certain way there was a there was a already an uninviting aspect aspect no when you say about the government i just want you to know, interrupt um, here i just want to interrupt about what you said about the government like in the uk after the war the government used henry more 
to make his public art commissions mm-hmm. in order to um it was like a, a, a it's not a propaganda but he it was a message through a, an artist like henry moore to kind of change people's perceptions and bring about a kind of hopefulness in their um idea of life after post um, you know the world war and i think right. uh, that really um uh, resonated with people so even now when you see henry moore's public uh, commission sculptures outside it's not something that people think of as an elitist thing it's something that they can everybody can relate to which i think the government in india has missed in terms of opportunity you know well um, so like you said when they don't uh, in general i don't think yeah but art in general i don't think is a priority of the government you know mm. and i mean india is battling with education and healthcare and a, a lot of other things that the government obviously considers more important and basic yeah. uh, for art to actually come to the forefront you know um and so you actually have that uh, gap now being filled by a lot of um private entities in a public format like the kiranadal museum which has a contemporary art museum that is open to public yeah. um you have the bhavdaji lad museum with which is a public private partnership and you know they've done some fantastic um collaborations with contemporary artists to um sort of you know do shows that uh, talk to the collection of the bhavdaji lad museum and um and the, it's great because these are places where especially the bhavdaji lad museum is you know the general public encounters contemporary art quite accidentally mm um and it's one of the very few places that that happens mm. you know because it because we don't have an audience that specifically chooses to go to a contemporary art museum um and yeah. so it's great that places like bhavdaji lad you know when you go there you encounter contemporary art mm. and then that sort of starts you of maybe on thinking about contemporary art hmm 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 um and so kape art coming back to that yeah. um basically started uh quite accidentally um a friend of mine uh had moved back had moved to india actually he's born and brought up in america but he's indian hmm. and he had a very and i use this word very loosely but a very nri perception of what indian contemporary art nri was. meaning non resident indian yeah you know hmm and so he was familiar with you know the big names like the rajas and but he didn't have any idea of what was happening currently in the art scene right um and so i offered to take him to see the galleries in bombay and um and then he was like oh hey you know i know a couple of other people be interested which in point us and then it became a thing where we were like oh if we're going to go to just you know have an open invite of like hey who wants to come along because i know that um for example in my friend of the uh i'm the one who wants to go galleries mm. we are interested and i figured i'm comfortable going to a gallery because i'm used to the scene i'm also interested in going to gallery company they might not want to go alone mm. whereas if you have this sort of a you know group or a bunch of people visit these six galleries on such and such day and we're going to be here at this time and here at this time and here at this time and just join us wherever you like yeah um 
it's a fun thing to do yeah and so we started doing this and of course like i have to say that it was um the they allowed us to do this because the galleries in Bombay have come together to um, to run something called Up Night Thursday, mm-hmm. uh, where the galleries stay open every second Thursday of the month for extended hours. And you finish work by 6.37, at least like once a month, you can still go and visit galleries because otherwise galleries usually shut by 7 o'clock and are, sh- and are closed on Sundays. Mm. And so it's really difficult for working people to do that. Right. And so... Because Art Night Thursday already existed in Bombay and the galleries are sort of, you know, geographically very close to each other. Yeah. It allowed someone like a Kape Arte to do a Art Night Thursday walkthrough mm. of new shows every month. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that sort of became our identity. And then we realized that, then I realized that I wanted it to be more than just visiting galleries because I wanted more engagement. Yeah. Right, I wanted people to get over this fear of like, can I ask this question? I don't understand this piece of art. Am I going to look stupid if I ask why is this blue instead of pink? Mm. Or if I ask how long it took for an artist to do this? You know, yeah. those kind of questions because you want people to be comfortable with art if you want them to engage with it, right? Yes. yes. Um, and so Kape Artists started organizing visits to artist studios. It started organizing um, conversations. It started organizing visits to private collections. Fantastic. Because also, um, I wanted people to know that there's no right or wrong way to collect art. Mm. I also wanted people to know that you don't have to be rich to collect art. So we visit all kinds of collections. Um, you know, so that anybody who's ever thought of buying art or supporting art is not going like, oh, but I don't have the money or I don't have the space or I don't have the know how etc right yeah because when you visit various collections you realize that there's no one way to collect art like people just start um and so yeah and so that's how Kape Artist started it's been three years now Mm. um and with the lockdown um we've actually been doing a lot of work online to connect um artists who are not represented by galleries with buyers through our Instagram. Yeah. So we run something called Kapi Artist Supports, mm-hmm. um, where we showcase um, six new artists every three days and we share work with them online. And it's all priced at 5,000 or under. So it's very affordable. Yeah. And it's been great because we've, we've sold about uh, 300 odd works. Um, and there's a whole new you know, sort of a lot of people who are buying art for the first time. We have so many messages of people who bought art for the first time and they're so excited when it comes home. Uh, you know, and they send us these GMs and they're like, oh, this is so cool. This is our first piece of art. And, and it's great because, you know, it's it's affordable. It's from a practicing artist. It's a buyer being connected directly to an artist. And plus, uh, and the... they, they feel that they're supporting someone. Yeah. And I think the digital divide kind of uh, gives them that um, sense of anonymity. You don't have to be there in person. It's not good because you're not seeing it in the flesh. But at the same time, if they're uncomfortable about their own um, uh, lack of knowledge, so to speak, this the fact that they are doing this through um, uh, an anonymous digital you know, divide, it's better for them to... Uh, buy whatever they like and then realize actually it's not bad it's fantastic and plus it's curated by you so it's already like filtered through your eyes so they know that what they're buying is definitely has been uh, vetted by somebody like you who's already uh, uh, knows about art 
Do you think no, that's and, the and, and they also and there's also that little sense of security in the sense that you know like if if something goes wrong, you know we're still there. Yeah, and we know that okay, this artist had ha- this person had made the payment for this art, and you know this artist had sent this work, and and so we we're there to help sort out any issues that might arise, you know. Yeah. Um, and you know these are great artists. It's yeah. not like these aren't good artists. You know yeah. these are artists like a lot of them have participated in group shows, have shown work in galleries. It's just that they're not signed to any one gallery. They, mm-hmm. um, you know, but. But some of their work is really great, and I mean, I know fellow artists who are buying fellow artists' work, and senior artists who are buying like younger artists' work, and and so it's been really good. It's it's been a great way of creating a new kind of a support system for artists in India. Mm-hmm. And do you think that Instagram now that has its uh, had its moment of reckoning, it'll always continue this way, or would you um would you do it differently in terms of how you're doing it earlier going for st- studio visits and i don't know when that's ever going to happen now with all this uh, lockdown and stuff so, so well kafi artist primary um objective still remains to help connect audiences with contemporary art mm. right that's still our basic uh, objective we want more people we want the general public to engage with contemporary art yeah and so um we will do studio visits and visits to collections and visits to galleries as soon as that's possible. Mm-hmm. Um, Kabe artist supports were sort of a need of the hour where we saw a lot of artists who were struggling. Yeah. Because you know a lot of young artists um, sort of supplement their income by um, ha- by taking art classes, by doing uh, small commissions of graphic work, by you know teaching, and all of that had come to a standstill. Mm. Um, and so this was sort of a need of the hour to find them an audience to buy their work right uh and so um so that's why this started i don't know how long we will run copy arte uh, supports because uh our primary goal was never to sell artwork Mm. and even through all of this we're not making any money right we connect the buyer directly to the artist and all transactions happen directly between them so copy art doesn't make any money from this right um but it's just because all of us who volunteer our time to run copy art also had the time and energy to do this mm. we decided to do it yeah i don't i don't know how long we'll carry it on for we've been doing this since april already yeah um but yes we will as soon as it's possible go back to our primary objective of connecting public to uh, to art contemporary art and so um one of the things that we are doing in fact tomorrow is a uh, a virtual guided tour of an exhibition that is happening mm-hmm. um so yeah so probably start you know doing virtual guided walkthroughs of exhibitions that are happening because now galleries are starting to do exhibitions and starting to put up shows of course you have to go and visit them by appointment you can't just drop in but now that they are starting to put up shows you know it would be interesting to actually do virtual visits of that on our instagram and you know still connect with that why not i also feel that right now a lot of people have like internet fatigue yeah yeah um because there's just so much happening like any given evening there at least like five different things happening on zoom yeah. and instagram and you know conversations with artists and visits to studios and this and that that i don't really think there is a need right now for kape art to be doing anything mm. which is why we are happy to focus on kape art supports at this time right 
and so with, uh, um, go back to our engagement later. Right. So with Kapiati Supports, how do you um, choose who will be there in the in the in the, the six artists that you choose every three days? So what are the kind of things that you look out for with these young artists? Do you want them to have a so, political message? Do you want them to be using art for a larger purpose, or is it just for the sake of art for what you like? I mean, what you do you ever analyze what you're um, actually promoting? So actually, we've been very, very open with copyright supports because, as I said, art is subjective, right? So what you like and want to buy is mm. not necessarily what I like and want to buy. Right. And the objective of copyright right now has been to create economical support for artists. Yeah. Um. And so, and also, like copyright is not a gallery, or you know, we don't have our own programming. We don't have our own sort of a visual. Um, objective visual language that we have to follow in terms of like we will only showcase these kind of artists or this kind of art right mm-hmm. so we've actually been very liberal in the kind of art that we've been showcasing our criteria is essentially practicing artists mm-hmm. um and then we also expanded it to um artists who are in their final year of college because again they are passing out at a very critical time yeah and it's very difficult for them, them to find support mm-hmm. um so what we do is we are uh artists have been sending us permission via instagram on email and we just or i we collate it and then the um we sort of you know take turns to just do a mixed selection mm-hmm. and that selection is not based on what i would buy or what somebody else from the team would buy it's just a selection of um work that we feel where there's an artist who has a substantial body of work mm-hmm. so you do um, um research into the artist's artists. works you do research into the artist's um I'm, background and what their um i mean so every artist is required to send us like a basic cv mm-hmm. and then a selection of work uh priced at five thousand or under right um so based on on like the work that they send us um we we post but yes. if you look at if you look at all of the work that we've showcased there's been a huge variety you know i can there's i can fault nothing to... it's so beautiful each one i think i would urge the listeners to follow kapya arte official because I've really enjoyed each and every post of yours. I've been struggling so much because, like, I get, I literally get to get first pick, and I'm like, oh my god, no, I have to like not buy. How can you resist? Much. How could you resist? Oh my goodness, and they're so it's beautiful. Been such a struggle. I know. It's such a struggle. So I know, as a, as somebody who is an art supporter, you have your own collection of art. that you have a personal collection of art and you're quite um proud of it and at the same time quite um secret not secretive but you don't want to be known as an art collector so can you elaborate a bit about why you moved away from the connotations of a collector do you think that being known as an art collector has any pejorative um associations or is that a, is that a like um I know it's been a very um conscious decision on your part because every time I say as an art collector you stop me and say no I'm an art supporter I'm not an art collector <laughs> so is there well, a reason why So I'm one of those weird people who doesn't own a house who doesn't own a car 
because I spend all of my money on art. Yes. Okay. And like my friends really think I'm mad. Um, my family, well, my mother doesn't really know how much I spend on art. I think she'd lose it a bit if she knew how much I spend on art. Um, because, um, I mean, I come from like a regular middle class family, you know. And the idea that I'm spending like a couple of lakhs on a work of art is something that my mother would not understand at all. <laughs> First of all, she doesn't understand contemporary art, you know. She'd look at like my work, my pieces by Rohini Devashir and be like, what is this? <laughs> and then, you know, she'd be like, how much did you spend on it? And I have to like really like switch the topic quickly. Um, but yeah, so because I'm like one of those people, so for me, the idea of an art collector is still very elitist. Mm. You know, it still um, tends to bring to mind someone who has generational wealth or just, you know, who's really rich and has tons of money to spend and decides to be an art patron or an art collector. And and then, you know, really... It's more about them than the artist, isn't it? It's more about their... Uh, largesse and the fact that they have uh, have this collection it it becomes somebody's it tends to become about that, them yeah right and then of course like depending on who the collector is it starts to become about the value of the collection and who the names are in that collection and how much the collection Tell is worth and it. whether it's going to become a public museum or a public collection and I don't have any of that, right? Like, I don't have generational wealth. Like I said, I don't own an apartment and I don't own a car because all of my money is gone into buying art. Mm. Um, but I'm I, sure you're wealthier than most because of that same art that you bought and it has increased in value. But that's not to say that my collection has big names. Uh, it has maybe one or two or a couple of recognizable names, but it also has a lot of, like, you know, not no names. Um, I mean, I literally have art from 1,500 to a couple of lads. You know, that's like the range. Um, and again, like, I don't I don't take myself seriously. You know, I feel like also collectors, like, take themselves very seriously. And it's about, like, okay, what is my collection missing? And who do I have to add to it? And, you know, really, like, finding those pieces to make the collection more rounded i i don't follow any of that my collection is just so organic and it's literally grown because of the number of artists that i get to engage with from work you know um in fact half the time like when i'm getting my salary it's literally going back to like the artists that i've been working with because you know in the process of doing the project i've been like oh my god i need this piece of art in my house and can i tell you that's a dream job natasha (laughs) oh my god i'm i'm so much like you but i just i don't have the access to the artist or (laughs) access to the money so (laughs) yeah that's that's what i have i'm lucky that i get to interact with so many artists right and so uh a lot of them have just joined my collection very organically because i I like to also look at my art and it's sort of for me a marker of a time place. Yeah, I agree. Right, I agree. person. Yeah. Um, and so like, sure, there's a lot of work that I bought like in my 20s and I look at it now and I don't really relate to it. But every time I look at the work, I think of that person and I think of the time spent with that person. I think of the conversations. It's, it's almost like a portrait of that person, you know. And also a portrait of you when you were in your 20s, right? When you bought yeah. that piece of art, that was a different person exactly. that you were. Yeah, 
exactly and there's always a story connected to it and and so for me um you know it's it's less about it's less about the idea of building a collection more about like the people i know yes and um and i'm i'm really not at all um private about my collection i mean if anybody wants to come and see it they're free to come and see it um but because i don't look at it as a from a collector point of view i don't think i talk about it as much and i don't think i have you know people saying that oh i want to come and see your collection because it it to me it's not a collection it's part of your life it's, isn't it it's part of something that you get exactly, up and see exactly that's what i say you know i i live with my art okay if you come to my house like i have so much art that i literally don't have wall space to put it on and i have like art on the floor and i have art behind covers and i have art on top of art because again i'm not rich i don't have storage space in bombay storage space is like freakishly expensive i don't have place to put my art except like live with it so it's a part of my life it's it's yeah yeah yesterday i was just listening to a podcast by this couple in new york and now the man is dead but both of them have like you they just collected um art because of the love of it and they didn't even realize if the artist is famous or not and they were just coming and now i believe after about 40 years of doing that they <laughs> the, the the lady has just donated it to the national gallery of uh, whatever of america and it goes into millions <laughs> so natasha yeah, just I... say just say maybe <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to do with my my you know art because um I don't have children and I I really don't know who I want to give my art to or what I want to do with it but yeah that's something that's something to think to about seen. yeah and i mean now i don't think you need to think about legacy still you're quite young and everything but it's uh, good to um think of of a future uh, for others to see your art So when you started collecting what was your first piece that you collected do you remember and why my first piece was Rohini Devashir uh-huh uh, who continues to be your favorite mm-hmm. um so this is i think in 2006 so i had just started working um and uh, Rohini had studied with another very good friend of mine Asha Chauhan at the Delhi College of Art right and it was asked her in fact who introduced me to rohini's work and uh, so it's a lithograph uh, from when she did a print residency in the uk and um, i absolutely loved it because you know lithographs have this really special quality to them that make them feel almost like these soft charcoaly mm-hmm. beautiful you know work Prince, and yeah. um the one that she had done was a black and white work um in 2004 and it's on japanese rice paper and it's just got this gorgeous sort of texture and it's called uh, love in the mist mm-hmm. um and that was 25000 <laughs> and my salary used to be 25000 wow. and um so i remember like getting rohini like you know i and at that time of course rohini was also a young artist she hadn't she had just finished her masters and this had been one of her first residencies she was in san for the gallery and so she was equally excited that somebody um you know her age wanted to buy her art and so i uh, told her it would take me about 6 or 8 months to be able to finish paying her because in that 25000 that i owed every month i had to pay my rent and i had to pay 
because mm-hmm. I was living by myself in Chennai. Yeah. And so I had to pay rent and I had to pay like food and blah, blah, blah. But um, I think I paid her over a period of like eight months. And she wanted to send me the work immediately. And I was like adamant that I would only accept the work once the payment Payment was finalized. Oh, is it? Nice. And that's how I've always functioned with all of my art and all of the artists is that I prefer to finish paying um, all of my installments before I accept the piece. Um, So yeah, so Rohini Devashair was my first, um, first buy in 2006. Imagine the sense of anticipation for how many of a month that <laughs> I waited to get that. And um, uh, so the next, after Rohini's, when you started collect, when you started buying for yourself, was it, uh, was it something that was cohesive to what you bought already in Rohini's work? Or no, was it like more said, eclectic? Like I my work is very organic, right? Mm-hmm. And it's always... It's always been uh, people that I've met, artists that I've met and artists that I've interacted with. In fact, I have very few pieces by artists that I don't know personally. Right. Um, And that's usually been because like, you know, it's been like a, like one was from an auction to raise money for the Kochi Biennale. Um, and, And so that work, I didn't know the artist personally. I met him later, but... Uh, not while I bought the work but otherwise most of the work has been because I've met these people and I know these people and I really enjoy their process and like them and you know so Mm -hmm. it's it's in my case my my art is extremely subjective like to uh, to another extreme you know um so no so it's not coherent in that sense uh not in the medium not in the subject not in the treatment none of it okay um yeah and the, the recent special piece that i got was um by aisha singh mm. uh whose work i again adore okay. and uh you know she makes these large format um sculptural pieces and i was like aisha i live in a tiny apartment in Bombay and I, <laughs> yeah, I know <laughs> piece because it covers three cities that I've lived in and have a connect with so it's it's an amalgamation of um, architecture from Paris from Chandigarh and from Madras and it's also interesting because it's the first piece so she wanted to experiment with um, breaking the planes because usually her pieces used to be in a single plane Mm. and she wanted to break that and try like multiple planes and so she asked me if she could do that and um, I agreed and so it's really also, I would say, a very important piece, um, even in terms of like, you know, her career. Yeah. Because it marks, it marks a change of direction um, in her work subsequently. So that's really another very special piece um, that I have, yeah. So don't you think there's a lot of, um, I mean, one is a good thing that you're doing, but there's a lot of power involved. And suppose you become, you are like an influencer and when somebody knows that you're collecting their work, automatically it increases their, um, it kind of validates for somebody who's less aware about art. Okay, if uh, Natasha is collecting Aisha's work, then that means I have to have a look at it. And if they like it, then it's, it's a done deal. So... Have you ever thought of that? Or do you run away from that? I think it would be way more credit uh, than is due. 
I don't think I'm such an influencer in terms of um I mean like Kaviyari literally has I don't know a little less than 4000 but I don't think I'm that much of an influence I think um I think artists like it when I'm involved with their work because um they know that I genuinely enjoy uh work and I and I enjoy collecting work and I enjoy supporting art and I enjoy different aspects of art which are not related to a market or to a monetary value and I think and I think that that's why artists like engaging with me mm. because um especially the younger lot you know like for them it's interesting that they I think I mean this is just my point of view I think it's because I'm accessible and I'm approachable and they can like just be like hey you know could you give us feedback on this work or like hey i don't know how to make an authenticity certificate and can you help me with that mm. or hey i have this commission and this is the agreement could you read it and let me know if there's any big problems yeah. like you know then i most of them know that they can just like sort of get in touch with me and i am accessible in that sense i mean that's so um, important so yeah so i don't think i'm i'm a big influencer i just think that i'm somebody that is uh, really interested in contemporary art and getting it to a general public and i think most of the artists see that about me and are so and, and are therefore happy to engage with me that's fantastic so what about artisans do you ever think of uh, connecting artists and artisans or you uh, connecting yourself letting getting to know people from villages and towns and these amazing crafts people and um i know you've talked about gauri gill and you've talked about um priya ravish mera so could you say a bit more about other people who are also doing work like that and if you have done anything like that so my connect with artisans is different because i work with a company that is based in hong kong and we um they rather focus on um on tours in india that are uh, built around art craft design mm-hmm. right and uh, and so i've been consulting with them um to basically uh build workshops and visits around artisans and their studios wow. um but connecting artists and crafts people one of the first exhibitions that i did in chennai uh, with the aparau galleries was uh was that we actually connected a craft person with an artist uh to develop a piece of art which was then made in um an edition of 3 or 5 mm-hmm. um and so we did have like uh, artists who worked with uh tanjo painters and artists who worked with cane weavers um and artists who worked with wood carvers and you know mm-hmm. had done interesting um uh, art design objects um i haven't actively engaged in art and craft in the sense that if an artist tomorrow did want to you know collaborate with a artisan i'm very happy to find a connect and put them in touch and help take that forward mm-hmm. but i haven't actively because i don't i don't really make art right like say i'm not an artist yeah and so i don't really explore art and craft as a combination together so like uh, a carpe arti but for um artisans like for example like uh, i'm 
sure there are people who are doing a lot of work with the craft sector and have that um but one of the things that you have to realize also is that a lot of the crafts are not in the main cities mm that's what that's the thing they don't right? towns and villages um, yeah. like when you're talking about crafts you're talking actually about a specific uh geographical cultural space mm um but there are people that engage with uh, craft the thing is in india also we do have quite a marked divide between art craft and design mm you know and there are very few people that are sort of bridging that gap mm like you mentioned like like god like i was saying goriville is is somebody is an artist who works a lot with artisans yeah uh vazvo x vazvo works a lot with miniature artists right um in udaipur mm mm-hmm. um Priya Ravish Mehra, of course, worked with the Rafu Rafu Garis, mm. uh, and so yeah, you do have people just like you have a few of the designers who work with craft people, right? Like like San Sandeep Sangaru works with artisans from the northeast and bamboo. Um, Rushad Shroff has worked with artisans. Mm-hmm. So um, these names are so, so good to know. Actually, I mean, just living outside, I don't think most of us have ever heard of these names. It's good to even. Um, understand and probably look for them google them and see what they do yeah so i mean i mean these are people who uh, have their main practice and their main practice tends to collaborate with craft people mm-hmm. you know but there are there are very few people who actually um like there are very few artists who actually collaborate with a craft person and give them credit um, i mean you have and to very openly give them credit exactly yeah yeah, yeah. exactly So um I wanted to ask you about one more thing you've written a few articles for the architectural digest and you were um writing for the art fairs and biennales could you say a bit more about that and your experiences um covering both biennales and art fairs and what is the essential difference and what do you prefer in terms of uh, if you if you are if somebody were to ask you uh, should i go to a kochi biennale or should i go to a um art basel for example so who are the kind of people um that visit each of them so um i haven't actually written about any of the biennales i have written only about the art fairs mm. for uh, architecture rajas yeah um they're both very different right an art fair is technically revolving around the market mm so an art fair is an event that is 3 to 5 days mm and the focus is on um selling art yeah right and so this is great if you actually um are interested in buying art and are interested in collecting art and you know so there's no like to- go to see art and see new artists and find galleries that are selling artists that you possibly want to buy and things like that if you are interested then you know you can always ask the the gallery representative to tell you about the artist or to tell you more about his work and his practice and it's like visiting any gallery right mm-hmm. the difference is that you have like over 100 galleries in one yeah. space yeah. and from all over the world right if you go to one of the bigger fairs and then of course you also have to understand that um a lot of these uh galleries that are participating are also um they've been selected right there's there's a selection process it's not just that because you have a gallery 
and you have the money that you can go and show at a fair. Mm. Um, so you really literally do get to see the best in the market mm. from that perspective. Um, and also like art fairs, you know, always have a lot of um, events happening on the side. So there are a lot of talks, there are a lot of uh, performances, there are a lot yeah. of, um, you know, uh, other exhibitions going on on the side. Yeah. So in that sense, it's it's it's, it's, it's interesting, uh, but the focus is on the market. Well, a Biennale, on the other hand, is uh, first of all much longer in duration. It's normally a couple of months. Mm. Um, and a Biennale is more like a large exhibition. Mm. So the Biennale is not looking at selling the artwork. Yeah, that's true. Actually, I've never actually seen uh, Biennale with price tags next to it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, mm. and and uh, so Biennale is very interesting because artists also get to explore work that is uh, specifically made for sites, and a lot of these sites are beautiful old uh, spaces. You know, like like the Kochi Biennale. If you look at it, there these gorgeous old warehouses and. And so, you know, you have an artist who's making site-specific work mm. that actually suits that space and it's, it, and it's brilliant. A lot of the work is sometimes existing work that, that fits into uh, the, the curatorial theme of the Biennale. But a lot of the work is actually site-specific and made for that, for that space. Okay. So when you're looking at it in that context, it's truly magical. Mm. And you know, also Biennales like tend to have uh, ephemeral work that is there only for the duration of the Biennale, and you're never going to see that work ever again. So there's something very magical about it. Mm. You know, it's it's purely about the art, the art in that moment, in that space, in that time. Right. And um, with all these new Biennales coming up, I mean, I really like the Sharjah Instagram. <laughs> That's the only window we have into these. Uh, events nowadays but the way they curate it is really good and um, somebody else is going to the Istanbul one so yeah well, the Sharjah Biennale is actually one of the older Biennales mm. it's been around for I think I think it's in its 14th or 15th edition now mm. so it's been around for like quite a while so another question I had was that we know that, you know, cave paintings to Botticelli to Ronnie Sen have all responded to their times in a profound way. So have you noticed how art is changing because of what's happening now and like in the coronavirus and the lockdown? Do you think it will have, um, I'm sure it will be seeped into all our consciousness, but will it, will it ever show in the way art is made, you think? So I think that depends on the artist and their practice. Mm. Um, I know a lot of uh, like artists like Dhruvi, um, Dhruvi Acharya yeah. have done a whole series of work, in fact, around COVID. You know, oh, she's been mm. sort of keeping a visual diary where she does a wow. watercolor almost every day and it's it's around the theme of COVID. Mm-hmm. Um some of the younger artists have spoken about other aspects of uh, COVID, you know, possibly like mm-hmm. family and uh, outdoor and those kind of things. Mm. I'm sure that there will obviously be um, markers of this time in mm. terms of uh, visual vocabulary. Uh, you also have, you know, 
there's a museum of covid on instagram which mm. is collecting objects um that uh, sort of relate to this time period um and and having building a collection uh there's also uh, the corona quilt project i think that has been asking artists to send in squares mm. of art which can all then be stitched together into this large sort of a quilt. oh nice <laughs> um so there are a lot of uh you know artistic projects that are happening around this time and 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 that's normal and natural because like you said historically art has always been a yeah. marker of time and and this is you know for most of us unprecedented like because the whole world is going through the same through thing pandemic before yeah my god crazy so um i'm kind of going to wind down now because it's been more than an hour so i wanted to ask you what are the three tips you would offer to budding art collectors enthusiasts when they uh so it's pretty simple it. yeah i think one is that you really have to engage with art if you really want to support art you have to engage with it and engaging with it means going to galleries going to museums meeting artists talking to artists talking to collectors talking to galleries you have to engage with it if you want to support it mm you know it's like you can't swim unless you're in the water mm yeah good analogy so yes. so the first thing is that you have to engage with it the second thing is don't be afraid of buying you know i have a lot of people who will come to me and say that oh you know i want to spend 15000 or 20000 and i i don't know what to buy and i'm just like you know just buy i mean that's the cost of like five dinners out in bombay like yeah. <laughs> why are you thinking so much about it get used to buying art i mean do you when you go to h&m and you spend like i don't know 10000 on a bunch of clothes that you probably will wear a couple of times before throwing out do you think so much you don't mm. so don't overthink it mm. you know yeah. and also please don't like go in with the idea that i'm going to spend 15000 but i want this piece to be worth like 15 lakhs in 10 years that doesn't happen either you know if you want your art to increase in value then the money that you put in also has to be a substantial amount yeah so um i would say yeah the first thing is engage with art the second thing is get used to the idea of actually buying art and not overthink it and the third thing is you know meet other people who buy art mm. see what they're buying yeah have conversations about that yeah. discover new artists it has um, to become part of your uh... whole personality it can't be something away from you it's not something like an object you buy and forget about it you have to keep um, reading about it's it it's not yeah. i mean like if you really want to support art you have to really immerse yourself in it in every aspect hmm. you have to buy it you have to support younger artists you have to engage with it you know you have to learn about it all of it so the three things that i uh, i would recommend is is engaging with art that means like visiting galleries and visiting museums and talking to artists and going to their studios and speaking with collectors the second thing is um actually buying art like actually saying that okay you know this is 10000 or 15000 or whatever i'm going to buy it and if it's a work that is more expensive than actually saying that okay you know i'm going to budget 
uh, X amount every month and paid off in installments. And and here's a very interesting thing is that most artists and most galleries will allow you an installment plan. Mm. So you don't have to pay it in one large chunk of money. You know, you can actually break it up yeah. and pay it over a couple of months. Mm-hmm. Um, and the third thing is don't overthink it. You know, don't overanalyze it. Don't wonder if this work that you bought for 15,000 is going to appreciate or not. Buy it because you like it. Buy it because you want to have it in your house. Buy it because you're going to be happy every time you look at it. Yeah. You know, and, and that, that again doesn't necessarily mean that it has to make you happy every, like 10 years from now. Buy it because it makes you happy now. Mm. You know? It's like and a diary, but have through fun. art. Have yeah. fun with yeah. it. Exactly. Have fun with it. Your taste will always change. Your taste will always evolve. But that doesn't mean that because you may not like it 10 years from now, you shouldn't buy it now. You mm. know, it's the same with fashion. I mean, do you really, really dress the same way you dressed like 10 years ago? You don't. But you still bought those clothes then, right? Yeah. So, yeah. Good, good. Good I advice. <laughs> so, what is the next project that you're thinking of? What are you uh, going to... Are you, what are you working on at the moment? And... um what is the plan after lockdown when you go back to Mumbai? Uh, so I currently am working on um, a public art collection, um, which I can't really tell you too much about. Mm. But uh, it, it's 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 a government project um, and it's for a public building. Um, with Kape Arte, um, I think the next thing is uh, possibly one of the ideas that we, we've been talking about as a group is to see how we can sort of have um, many grants for artists, for practicing artists that just sort of allow them to use the money to, to travel or buy material or do whatever they want, you know, because I think part of an artistic practice is to be able to experience things. And so we just want to be able to give them many grants to be able to do whatever they want because we know that it'll come back to uh, their practice. And uh, it's been so great that the, the way the public has been sort of supporting art and artists is that we have we hope to have um, public-supported grants. And you were um, mentioning that there was an artist who couldn't afford to go to a residency abroad. and Yeah, so actually that was, uh, that was something that happened about um, two years ago. I think it was in 2000. 18 uh, there was this artist and I'm not going to name any names because it's also her, her story and I don't want it to be uh, something that I take ownership on and tell the world but um, it was basically an artist who had uh, had a, a an international residency mm. and uh, the residency was paying for accommodation and travel but um, the artist did need some money for the three month duration that um the artist was going to be there mm. and uh, and so um through Kape Arte we sold a lot of her work of course she had like put the prices really low but we sold a lot of her work and we managed to uh sell work for about eighty five thousand. um and it was great because you know like the the minute we told uh people who follow Kape Arte and who uh you know come on all of our walks and our talks and things like that a lot of them wanted to buy the work to support the artist for, mm. for the artist to be able to go um 
and really, you know, be a part of this residency completely. Nice. And that was really nice. That was such a such a great way of, um, you know, people and general public coming together to support mm. um, this sort of artistic endeavor. And uh, so we hope to be able to do that also with a couple of grants um, for different artists. So yeah, that that's the plan. Okay. You should see how we implement it. Amazing. For a lot of these uh, artists, even when they do get residencies um, that give accommodation and a small stipend, it's still very expensive to live abroad as compared to living in India. Yeah. You know, and, and I kind of think it's, it's, it's really sad if you're in a place like the UK and you can't, you know, go to the museums and you can't go to um, different shows because you can't afford them. I know. That's kind of silly that you've gone all the way there and then you can't or access even, these experiences. Or even participate in shows because you can't afford to be part of them. Anyway, so uh, it's been great talking to you, Natasha. It's been... Uh, wonderful like the um, conversation we had before the back and forths of mails <laughs> but finally it's happened and I'm so so I've learned so much from this conversation I hope the listeners uh, get to understand how um, art in India is um, evolving and uh, emerging and probably taking over from the rest of the world and um, all the best for your endeavors with Kapiati and your um, consulting and thank you again. Thank you so much. If anyone wants to reach out to me, you can do that even on my Instagram account. Yeah. Where I always talk about art. More art. Yeah, yeah. I will but tag yes, feel, feel free um, if anybody wants to reach out to me um, and if you have any other questions about Indian art. And thank you so much, Divya, for having me on your podcast. Oh, my I pleasure. wish you the best for all of your other podcasts good that are going to happen thanks